Well, happy Labor Day weekend to you, and I appreciate you being here today. My name's Nate. If we don't know each other, I'd love to meet you. But as Zeb mentioned, next week we start a new series on uh, the topic of grace, and the series is just called Grace. And um, so it's pretty clever, but uh, I hope that you will uh, join us next week for that. Today, I want to talk about the power of being an encouraging person. Have you ever had someone come along in your life at just the right time and make you feel believed in? I think about when I was a freshman in high school, um, a couple of embarrassing things had happened to me publicly, and um, I just felt like a total loser as a freshman in high school. And um, there was a woman in our church who listened to me. Uh, I was serving in a, a kid's class, um, and she listened to me share the Bible story one Sunday, and she pulled me aside uh, later, and she said, Nate, you have a gift. You have a gift, and you have no idea what God could do through you. And as a little 14-year-old, I didn't know I had any gifts, and I didn't think God could use, I didn't know what God might use me for. I hoped maybe he could, but I had no idea. And her coming along at just the right time and saying that, she had no idea the things I was going through in my life at the time, but her words in that moment put wind in my sails. The same thing happened to me my junior year of high school. There was a teacher who, her name was Miss Shirk, and she came along and she said, Nate, have, have you ever considered running for student body president? And she was the teacher in charge of student government at our high school. And she said, to be honest, I would just love to work with you. Because even though you're soft-spoken, I've noticed that you have ideas. And whenever you're given the opportunity to communicate them, people listen. And I would love to work with you. And as a junior in high school who's still overcoming all kinds of insecurities, that was exactly what I needed to hear to put wind in my sails. And those are things that were unique to me, but my guess is that there have been times in your life where someone has come along and they've said something to you at just the right time that put wind in your sails. But, but isn't this true? That it's not just what a person says to you that determines whether or not it's encouraging. But it's also just who the person is as they say it. It's their presence. It's their demeanor. There's something about an encouraging spirit, an encouraging person that you can just feel when you're around them. Just being in their presence makes you feel believed in. And my guess is you've experienced the power of that before, but, but can I tell you something sad? Many people wander through life without an encouraging person, without a consistently encouraging person in their life. Maybe that's your story. Maybe that was your mom's story. 
And consequently, because there's not a consistently encouraging person in their life, they they go through life and they feel lonely because it feels like nobody really gets me. Maybe they feel guilty because of something they've done and it feels like they'll never be able to move past that. Maybe they feel worthless because of something that someone has said or a way that someone has made them feel or the way that just life has compounded pain on them. And they feel hopeless because it seems like it's never gonna change. And it's not that they've never had somebody tell them, you know, those things aren't true. It's that they've never had somebody make them feel like they weren't true. Imagine the power that a consistently encouraging person could have on a life. And so today I want to talk about the power of being an encouraging person. And let me tell you why we're talking about this today. Um, It's Labor Day and Labor Day weekend is the weekend of transition, right? School starting back, um, unless you live in Kent, I guess. Um, And so school starting back and football is back and pumpkin spice is back and everybody is excited and lots of new stuff is happening and and you will be doing a bunch of stuff now, you know? And whenever Labor Day weekend hits, our attention is generally focused on our calendars, our schedules, the stuff we're going to be doing, and all that stuff's great. And even at the church, this is true. Like, we're starting a new sermon series, and we're kicking this off, and we're launching this, and all of a sudden, everything's launching, you know? Um, and... And so stuff just gets busy, all right? We're moving into fall. And there's, some, there's a lot of excitement that goes with that, which is great. But, but here's why we're talking about this today. Because before we get into that season of busyness, while we still have just a little bit of time before we get busy, I think it's important for us to zoom out and think about not just what we're going to do this fall, But who are we going to be this fall? Who are we going to be this fall? And here's the power of being an encouraging person is without it, you can do a lot of stuff and make a little bit of difference. But if you can learn, and if I can learn to be an encouraging person, it will maximize the difference that you can make in this world. So that's what we're going to talk about today, the power of being an encouraging person. And to do that, we're going to look at who I think is the unsung hero of the New Testament. If I had to ask you, like, who are some famous people in the New Testament? What are a couple names that would come to mind? Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Always the right answer. Yep. <laughs> Jesus. Who else? Paul. Yeah. Paul, Peter, right? Maybe James, honorable mention, right? John, yeah, sure. All right. And so these are, you know, these are the guys, right? But how did Paul become Paul? Uh, Well, wasn't he just always, I mean, well, the story of Paul can't really be told without the story of the guy we're going to talk about today. His name was Joseph. 
Joseph. But Joseph, he was from Cyprus by birth. Um, so he was, grew up in kind of a Greek-speaking you know, culture. But he was Jewish. And this man named Joseph came to Jerusalem for a Jewish holiday called Pentecost. And while he was in the city, a miraculous thing happened in Acts chapter two. You can go read about. Jesus has ascended after he's been raised from the dead. And he says, I'm gonna come again. In the meantime, you should go and be my witnesses around the world. And after he says that, the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost at this holiday. And it's this miraculous thing Peter, another famous guy, stands up and preaches this message. And the the central theme of the message is Jesus is resurrected. He's been raised from the dead and he's the Messiah. He's the one who will save the world. He's the one who will make all things right. And you should repent of your sins and follow Jesus. And this amazing thing happens and thousands of people begin to follow Jesus that day on the day of Pentecost. And from what we can tell, Joseph was that guy, was one of the guys who who starts to follow Jesus that day. And because there was so much excitement and there was so much momentum and there were so many people now in the city of Jerusalem who were following Jesus, a lot of people who had come to Jerusalem for the holiday just stuck around and they started to live there. And they started to gather together regularly. And they would get together to hear the apostles teach and they would share their food and they would share their resources and they would pray together and the church began to be birthed. And in the church was this guy, Joseph. And he had such an impact on the people that he interacted with that they actually just gave him a nickname. And his nickname was Barnabas. Acts chapter four is where we're introduced to him. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter four is where we're gonna start and then we're gonna um, follow this guy's story throughout the book of Acts. But Acts chapter four, verse 36 is where we're first introduced to him. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas. And here's why they called him that. Because Barnabas is translated son of encouragement. Here's what he did, verse 37. He sold a field that he owned, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph earns a nickname because of something about him. And the nickname is Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And here's what's interesting to me. The word encouragement here, normally I try not to use Greek words for you, but uh, this time it's helpful, okay? Um, And the word that's used here for son of encouragement is the word paraklesis. Paraklesis. It's where we get the word paraclete. It's a word that just means encourager, but it's a more complex word than that. This is the word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit in John 15 and 16. 
This is actually a word that's used about Jesus in 1 John chapter 2. There it's translated as advocate. In John 15 and 16, generally it's translated as helper or counselor. But it's the same word. This is a word that means it's someone who makes you feel believed in, who you can trust. It's someone who stands up for you. It's someone who has your back. It's someone who listens and cares about you. It's someone who carries your burdens. It's someone who gives you the strength you need to keep going. It's someone who gives you hope for the future. That's what this kind of person is. It's someone who puts wind in your sails, someone who helps you have the fuel you need to keep going. That's the kind of guy that Barnabas was. And to be called Barnabas, they're saying like, you know who you remind me of? You remind me of the Holy Spirit. That's who you remind me of. The way that the Holy Spirit comes along and and encourages us to keep going and to do what's right, The way the the Holy Spirit comes along and helps us in our weakness, the way the Holy Spirit comes along and gives us confidence when we're afraid, the way the Holy Spirit comes along and makes us brave, that's what you are like. And so he gets a nickname. That's the kind of guy that Barnabas was. It tells us that he sold a field and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet not because he was buying his nickname, um, but because Luke, the author of Acts, is contrasting Barnabas with these other people, Ananias and Sapphira, in chapter five. The point of telling us that he sold the field is that Barnabas is not only just a nice guy who says nice things and makes you feel good, but he's somebody that you can actually trust. He has integrity. He does what's right. He's generous. He's a good guy. He's not just, you know, a brown noser. He's a good guy. That's the kind of man he is. Well, for such a great guy to be introduced to us in Acts chapter four, you would think that the story is going to be about him, right? Acts chapter four, we learn, okay, there's this guy. He's got a nickname, Barnabas. Well, tell us more about him. Silent. Get to chapter five, nothing. Chapter six, nothing. Chapter seven, nothing. Chapter eight, nothing. Like, where is this guy? But there's a lot of stuff happening while Barnabas is just behind the scenes encouraging people. Here's what's happening. The church is continuing to grow. More and more people are coming to follow Jesus. More and more people are coming to trust that Jesus is the Messiah who's been raised from the dead. They're repenting of their sins and they're following him. And so the church is growing like crazy. Because there's so much growth in Jerusalem, the leaders in Jerusalem are threatened and they start to attack the church. And the apostles are arrested a couple times. And then eventually some of the other leaders in the church are put on trial and it all culminates and comes to a a boiling point with this man named Stephen. You can read about this in Acts chapter seven. But Stephen was also an awesome guy and they kill him. And they kill him by throwing rocks at him right outside the city gate. You can still go to Stephen's gate today in Jerusalem. And after Stephen is killed, 
the church starts to scatter. And the reason that they scatter is because people are afraid. Everything was going so well in Jerusalem. Everything was growing, but now there's such a threat that they need to spread out. And so a lot of these people who had come to Jerusalem for the holiday originally go back home. And they go to different places throughout the Mediterranean rim, throughout the Roman empire. And so they start to scatter. One of the places that they scatter, we'll look at in just a minute. But meanwhile, as the church is scattering, there's this young Jewish man who's very bright. He's very passionate. He's a strong leader. He's very well educated. He's got lots of connections in Jerusalem and throughout the Jewish world. His name was Saul. And because he was so bright, so talented because he was so passionate about defending the Jewish faith from these new Jesus follower heretics. Because he was so passionate about that, he started to be on the front lines of arresting followers of Jesus and trying to have followers of Jesus killed. Saul had received official government orders to go and arrest more followers of Jesus. And as he's on his way north out of the city, going towards Damascus, a road that you can still walk today, as he's going north out of the city, suddenly Jesus appears to him in this supernatural event. You can read about this in Acts chapter nine. And He falls down, he goes blind, he hears Jesus and it doesn't take long. And suddenly he's not just a Jewish man anymore. He's a Jewish man who believes that the Jewish Messiah has come. And so Saul, who hated people who followed Jesus and hated Jesus, repents of his sins and starts to follow Jesus. And for three years, he stayed relatively unknown. For three years, Saul just met with the church. He got to know people where he was in Damascus and back in his hometown of Tarsus. But three years later, after Saul has become a follower of Jesus, he goes to Jerusalem. And the reason he goes to Jerusalem this time, he's been there his whole life for different things. But the reason he goes to Jerusalem this time is because he wants to meet with the church who actually walked with Jesus. He wants to go be with the people who walked with Jesus and ate with Jesus and had sleepovers with Jesus, who saw Jesus raised from the dead He wants to go be with the Jerusalem church. And specifically, he wants to be with the apostles. He wants to get to know them. He wants to hear more. But let me ask you something. This guy who used to want to kill you and was responsible for killing one of your best friends 
He knocks on the door and is like, hey, I've changed. I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus now. Do you believe him? Somebody who's caused all kinds of damage in your family. I mean, think about it personally right now. Like there's this person in your life. They've done all kinds of terrible things to you, to your kids, to your kids' friends. And they show up at your door one day and they say, I'm better now. I'm changed. Do you let them in? They didn't let them in. They don't want anything to do with this guy. They don't trust him. And honestly, it's great that, you know, he says he's a follower of Jesus, whatever. But there, there are other churches. They don't want anything to do with him. Acts chapter nine, verse 26. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Verse 27. First time we see Barnabas again. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. How did Barnabas know all that stuff? Why did Barnabas know Saul's story? Because he just can't not. He oozes with encouragement. He oozes with advocacy for people. The reason he knew the story is because he had listened to this guy. And he had gone and verified what Saul had said with what other people had said. He was willing to take a chance on this guy that the rest of the church was afraid of. Because that's just who he was. And so the result of that, verse 28, is Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Now think about that. Saul, the guy who's going to be Paul in just a few chapters and is going to write the majority of the New Testament. The church is going, eh. See, the forgiveness of Jesus is instant, but it takes time to rebuild trust with people. And in order for that to happen, you need some people like Barnabas. Barnabas, being the advocator that he is, serves as the go-between between Saul and the apostles. Who does that sound like? It's almost like He's the son of encouragement in the same way that Jesus is an advocate. In the same way that Jesus goes between sinners and a holy God, it's like Barnabas is choosing to step in the gap here, stick his neck out for Saul with the apostles. Then after Saul gets into the church and starts speaking boldly, 
Verse 29, he conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. That is, Jews from a Greek background. But they tried to kill him. (laughs) Verse 30, when the brothers found out, that is, when the men of the church found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. The church who was afraid of him actually becomes the one who's responsible now for protecting Saul. Before, they wanted protection from him. Now they're offering protection to him. What changed? They got to know him through this man named Barnabas. And so they're responsible for protecting Saul, getting him out of Jerusalem when his life was being threatened. Before, they would have thrown him out. They would have said, hey, they want to kill this guy? All right, hey, we'll arrange for you to meet up with him so you can kill him. We'd love to get rid of him. We're terrified of the guy. Now they're actually protecting him and they send him off to Tarsus. Meanwhile, several things happen with Peter. The church continues to grow. But some of those followers of Jesus who had left Jerusalem make it to this city called Antioch. Antioch It's not a super popular city today, but in the Roman Empire, it was a major prominent city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, second only to Rome and Alexandria. It was a super strategic place. If you want the message of Jesus and his resurrection to spread throughout the whole world, then you need a healthy, thriving group of Jesus followers in a city like Antioch. And the church in Jerusalem knew that. And so some of these people who have left Jerusalem make it to Antioch and they start a church there and they start getting together and they start spreading the message about Jesus and more and more people start to follow Jesus and become part of the church in this city called Antioch. And so when the Jerusalem church hears about that, they think, okay, this is great. This is a super important city for there to be a a healthy church. So how do we make sure that this church gets off the ground in a healthy way? How do we make sure this church stays faithful and learns how to become the kind of church that they ought to be? Who should we send to a church like that? Who do they send? Barnabas. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 22. News about them, that's the church in Antioch, reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. Verse 23, when he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them. How how could he not? He encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And here was the result. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. The church in Antioch thrives as a result of Barnabas getting there. And then something really world-changing happens. But nobody knew it was world-changing at the time. Barnabas has this big church now. And he's a, he could be a big deal, all right? Everybody could be like, Barnabas, we'd really love for you to write some letters and circulate to all these, you know, different. But Barnabas sees 
what's going on in Antioch, and he has a thought. You know who would be really good for this church? You know who has the gifts and the calling and the character to step in to this situation and make it even better? Look at verse 25. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, think about how crazy these two verses are, okay? It says, then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. Why did he have to search for him? They didn't know where he was. Now, think about that. The guy who's eventually going to write the majority of the New Testament, and they don't even know where he is. He's not involved in any kind of big way. We asked Christians 2,000 years later, who are some of the most famous people in the New Testament? We got Jesus and Paul were the first two answers. And at this point, they don't even know where he is. How does Saul become Paul? There's a man named Barnabas who hunts him down, who gets him in the game. And it's from the church in Antioch where Barnabas goes and brings Saul and plugs him in. It's from the church in Antioch that Paul's missionary journeys are launched. Look at Acts 13, verse two. As they were worshiping the Lord, this is in Antioch, in the Antioch church. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. And then Acts chapter 13 and 14 is the story of Barnabas and Saul going on what's called Paul's first missionary journey. Notice how Barnabas just sneaks into the background. Nobody calls it Barnabas' first missionary journey. It's just Paul's first missionary journey. But who was responsible for the whole thing starting in the first place? Jesus, yep, but then Barnabas, (laughs) right? How does Paul become the most prolific Christian through a man who was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, who could be known as an encourager? Let me ask you something. Are you helping any Saul's become Paul's? Jesus called Saul into ministry, Acts chapter nine. But in his providence, Jesus used a man like Barnabas to put wind in the sails of this guy that the church didn't even want coming. 
And through that, the missionary journeys of Paul were launched. See, most people won't grow until someone believes in them. Our mission as a church is we want to help people find and follow Jesus. What kind of culture must there be? What kind of culture becomes an incubator for growth in Christ? A kind of culture like this, a kind of culture like Barnabas, a culture of encouragement. God uses people of encouragement to help us step in to his calling for our lives. What if God wanted to use you to be one of those kind of people? What's so cool about this is it doesn't matter what your personality type is. Encouragement is not a personality trait. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Encouragement is something that anyone can practice. Now, there are some people who are, you know, more naturally bent to seeing the bright side than others. You know, my wife is always going to see things a little bit brighter than I do. I'm always going to first see like, ah, this really sucks, you know, but, but somebody like my wife comes along and she's like, this is pretty good. I like this. And so, you know, there's difference in personality types, but all of us can become people of encouragement. What if there are some Saul's who have the potential to be Paul's and a thousand years from now, they will be still a name that people are talking about and you are a person that God wants to use to plug them in and get them engaged. If you're a teacher in a kid's class and you get the weekend off and I hope that you enjoy the break, you have no idea, no idea the potential, the potential that you have with the words that you speak and the presence that you bring every Sunday in the class that you're serving in. If you're a high school D group leader, if you're a middle school small group leader, if you're a baby rocker, you have no idea the wind that you can put in sails and you have no idea where those sails might eventually sail to. You have no idea how God might want to use you. But if you show up ready to be an encouragement with your words and your demeanor. You might just help somebody find and follow Jesus. What would it look like? What do we need in order to become these kinds of people? I just want to share three brief things. First, if we're going to be people of encouragement, we have to remember the gospel. We have to remember the gospel. Why do I say that? Well, why was Barnabas able to take a chance on someone like Saul? And the reason is because in the gospel, the gospel is just a word that means good news. It's the message of what Jesus has done for us. In the gospel, Jesus took a chance on Saul. Listen to what he says. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is Paul writing. 
And he says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul is telling his story later in life as he's writing to this young pastor to encourage him. And he says, just remember my story. Jesus considered me faithful. Jesus appointed me to a task, even though I was unfaithful to him, even though I was a blasphemer and a violent, arrogant man. So what kind of person reaches out to a person like Paul and says, hey, apostles, you guys should meet with him. Someone who remembers the gospel. Hey guys, I just want you to remember Saul, the one that I know we're all afraid of him. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The apostles had a list for why they didn't want Saul in the church. And it was a pretty good list. But Barnabas was making a different list. Because he was anchored in the gospel. The gospel gives grace to sinners. But here's what else the gospel does. The gospel not only gives grace so that you can be forgiven, but the gospel says that your future can be different. You can change. Not because of how great you are and how you learn some principles and yada yada, but because God's grace has the power to bring you from death to life. You're blind now in your sin, but the grace of God can make you see. The grace of God can cause you to stand firm in truth, can cause you to walk in holiness. Barnabas is playing the long game. Yeah, I know this guy is, you know, we're terrified of him, but the gospel says that even this guy could turn into someone that God could use. The gospel not only gives grace for our sin in the past, but it also gives us grace to change so that our future as Christians can always be bright. I don't know what the next 200 years are gonna look like in the state of Washington, but I know what the state of Washington will look like on the last day when Jesus returns. Jesus is making all things new. So you don't have to be afraid about what's going on the 
future of Washington state, just like the future of the United States and the future of Afghanistan and the future of Russia and the future of every square inch of this earth is going to be transformed by the grace of Jesus. And so have hope. Barnabas is able to live with optimism, not because today is so great, but because he knows what day is coming. And you can too, by the grace of God. So remember the gospel. Number two, if we were going to be a, a people of encouragement, look for the good. Look for the good. Paul must have learned this from someone. And he says in Philippians 3, hey, keep your eyes on people who walk according to the example you have in us. And then he says in Philippians chapter four, verse eight, finally, brothers and sisters, here's the kind of stuff you should think about. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Look for the good. Now, some of you, as you read this list, you're like, yeah, I know. The reason I have such a hard time with this person is because here's what's true. (laughs) And I'm not disputing that. But here's the truth before and after that. The truth before that is they are a human being created in God's image. And the truth after that thing that is true is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You can find something good to see. Look for the good. Number three, use your words for building up. Use your words for building up. Does this mean there's never a place for constructive criticism? No, absolutely not. The key is constructive criticism. And it's probably worth saying that not every criticism that you see has to be said. You could save that one for later. You could critique, Scott Sauls is a pastor in Nashville, he says this. He says, critique softly, encourage fiercely. And I love that. Use your words for building up. Do you know that your words have power? The tone that you use has power. What would it look like for you to use your words for building up? As we wrap up, I just want you to think about a few different arenas of life. Your home, your workplace, your school. If, if you go to school, um, is your home encouraging? What would your kids say? Is your home a place where people feel believed in, where there's wind for their sails, where there's freedom to mess up? Are the people who work for you, if you're an employer, are they encouraged? 
Is your boss encouraged? If you're an elementary student in the room or a middle school or high school student in the room and you're about to go back to school, is your teacher going to be encouraged by you? You have an opportunity to bring life to your teacher every day. What if we became known as encouragers? What kind of difference could be made? How many souls might become Paul's? Because God wants to use you as a person of encouragement. This is what I hope our church could be like. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for sending the spirit. Spirit, would you convict where we need to be convicted? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, would we be a people who make it feel like what your kingdom will feel like here on earth? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?